Many years ago, Riley Knight completed a degree in history. This proved to be a bad move, as it was absolutely useless for him. Until now, here's some half-assed history. What's going on, mate? Great to have you along for some more half-assed history this week on the agenda. Going to be having a chat about the uh, the very the remarkable story of the ten thousand. This was a uh, a Greek mercenary company who had to make a very dangerous journey through hostile deserts and towering mountains while pursued and and set upon by enemies of all kinds. Uh, the story comes to us uh, from one of the ten thousand leaders, a bloke whose name was Xenophon of Athens. Uh, and he wrote a very bloody famous account of the adventure called Anabasis, or it might be Anabasis. I don't know how to pronounce it. I'm going to go with Anabasis, but I'm very sorry to all the ancient Greek nerds who are listening to this and, uh, you know, yelling, yelling, screaming into their headphones about how wrong I'm getting it. Anyway, these mercenaries, the 10,000, they found themselves more or less abandoned, deep in unfriendly lands, uh, deep in the, in, the, in, the, in the heart of the Persian Empire. Uh, and they had to navigate and maneuver their way through uh, through political, through diplomatic, and and through through military struggles. Obviously, as they tried to make their way back to their native Greece, it's an incredible tale of adventure that has survived almost two and a half thousand years. And uh, it was suggested as a topic by alert listener Trevor Potts. And uh, in his email, Trev sold to me immediately. I, I, th- I thought I'd rather you know rather than try to give it the big ups here in my own words, I'll just read you what Trev sent because he, he sold it. To, as I say, he sold it to me immediately uh, by describing it as. <clears throat> An epic tale of maroon Greek mercenaries in enemy territory with betrayal and beheadings, a Persian brotherly blood food, and a footbridge made of slaughtered animal herds. And I mean, if that doesn't get you sitting up and listening, I don't know what will. Thanks, Trev, old mate. Good on you for sending it in. Uh, but we've got a lot to get. Uh, we've got a lot to get across. So let's not waste time. Let's push on to the beheadings and the dead animal bridges. All you know, all that high tier history that you love to hear. Let's get to it. So we're going all the way back to uh, all the way back to 401 BCE here. So do remember, as we're before the Common Era, we'll be counting down. Uh, we'll be counting years down as time passes, not up. So counting down. So for example, 401 BCE is before 400 BC, not after. Remember, you know, if you remember this, basically, otherwise you'll think that we're dealing with like time traveling ancient Greek mercenaries. Although that would that would definitely make things more exciting. Anyway, back in 401. The Battle of Kunaxa took place just outside present-day Baghdad on the banks of the Euphrates. And this is where we meet the 10,000, a band of, well, 10,000 Greek mercenaries um, who had been hired by a bloke named Cyrus, Cyrus the Younger. He was the son of Darius II, who was the ruler of the Persian Empire, usually referred to as the Great King or the King of Kings, the, the, the ruler of the Persian Empire. And he had two sons, this Darius bloke. He had Cyrus and his older brother, who became the great king Artaxerxes II in 404 BCE, a couple of years before this battle. Now, Artaxerxes and Cyrus, they didn't get on too well. Classic, you know, brotherly spats here and there. Artaxerxes probably pinning him down and, do, you know, doing that thing where, they, where you pretend to spit in, in your little brother's face, you know, all, all that sort of thing. Um, but a few years after Artaxerxes had uh, taken the Persian throne, Cyrus goes, bugger this for a joke. His brother's been a real prick to him. He's had a gutful, mate. And so he goes, yeah, now listen, I reckon I'll have that throne for myself, to be honest. So, so Cyrus hires this mercenary company, the 10,000, and he marches them all the way from Ionia, which is the western shore of, of present-day Turkey, you know, around the Ionian Islands, uh, which, which at, that, at that point in history was, was, it was Greek at the time, it was part of Greece. 
And he marches them all the way from Ionia to the heart of Persia, outside of what is now Baghdad in uh, in modern-day Iraq. Now, this is a long bloody way, I might point out. It's about 2,000 kilometres, which is more or less a month's march if you're marching all day every day. Uh, and so these Greeks, uh, they're a long way from home, right? Anyway, as I say, Cyrus and his 10,000, they march all the way to Canaxa, long bloody way, along, uh, along with the other forces that Cyrus had picked up as well. And after this long and gruelling march, Cyrus and his armies, they finally arrive at Canaxa on the 3rd of September in 401 uh, BCE. And there they meet the armies of Artaxerxes II and, uh, oops, they are outnumbered almost four to one. So big, big army the Persians have assembled here. Still, these Greek mercenaries, they're not deterred and they're still ready to march into battle and give these Persian buggers a, a, you know, a, a, a damn good whipping, give them what bloody, bloody four, mate. Uh, and so the Greeks, they were deployed on the right flank while Cyrus and his other forces took the left. Now, the 10,000, they threw themselves into the fighting, blasting the Persians to bits, mowing down the ranks with a, with a, with a power and the precision typical of these highly trained Greek, Greek hoplites. The 10,000, they scattered the Persians not once but twice, actually. They saw them off even after they'd regrouped and tried again. And throughout all the fighting... The Greeks didn't lose a single hoplite. The only casualty was 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 one bloke who got injured, making them, you know, rather than the ten thousand, the the nine thousand nine hundred ninety nine plus one bloke with a bit of a limp. Um, so our boys are doing a great job. They're killing it in more than one sense. Good on you, fellas. Uh, so let's just nip over to the other flank now, and we'll see how Cyrus is going, shall we? Oh dear. Okay. Whoops. Uh, Cyrus, who is leading the troops on the left flank. He decided to charge the personal bodyguard of his brother Artaxerxes. Now, this proved to be a bad move because as he stormed towards his brother with all the all the wrath and the fury of a thousand generations of younger brothers burning in his heart, determined to ex- exact vengeance and claim the Persian throne for himself, he was killed by a javelin. Oops. This deadly javelin uh, was thrown by a bloke named Mithridates, uh, although he didn't receive the accolades or the adoration you might have expected for such a feat. You know, killing the leader of the enemy forces, Mithridates ended up, well, yeah, quite the opposite, in fact, because the story goes that Artaxerxes was so outraged at Mithridates for, you know, for basically what is essentially, you know, kill stealing, uh, that he had Mithridates executed by scaphism, no less. So uh, let's spend some time talking about scaphism because it involves, you know, all the blood and the guts and the nasty, gory bits that you love so much. Uh, in all seriousness, this, this is actually super gross. So if you're a bit if you're a bit queasy with this sort of thing, you know, best just sort of skip forward a minute or two, I reckon, because it, it, it is about to get really nasty here. Um, and also, before I explain what it is, I also need to say that it might actually not ever have happened or been a thing. Uh, scaphism might have just been an invention. Uh, the Greeks may have made it up altogether in their literature. We're not actually certain that this practice took place. It's it's thought that it may just be a you know a, a fictional thing that the Greeks made up, pulled out of their bums there. So so keep that in mind as I tell you this story. Anyway. The story goes that Artaxerxes, he ordered this bloke, Mithridates, uh, to be executed by scaphism, or as it was also known, by the boats. He was going to be executed by the boats. So if you if you execute by scaphism, executed by the boats, this is what happens. So Mithridates, uh, he was taken, he's stripped naked, and he's put on his back in a small boat, small enough for his head and his hands and his feet to stick out over the sides. He was then forced to eat until he was fuller than full, 
Uh, but this wasn't, you know, last mercy. This wasn't an act of generos- generosity, this last meal, as you'll see. Because then they got a second boat, right? Same size as the first. Uh, so they sort of fit onto each other like a clamshell. Although this one had little holes cut in it, uh, in, in its edges for his, heads and ha- his head and his hands and his feet to stick out of. And then it was nailed on top of the first boat. So again, you know, like a, like a clamshell, one on top of the other. They're sort of facing each other, right? Uh, nailed on top of the first boat there. So poor old Mithridates was trapped in there. I guess, you know, a little bit like a tortoise, you know, tortoise on his back there. And after this, Mithridates then had his head and his hands and his feet covered in milk and honey, slathered all over it, which obviously then attracted flies and other insects. They're bloody covering his face till you can't see any. You know, absolutely gross, disgusting, right? And of course, he's just had a big meal, hasn't he? So after... As, as Plutarch, this is Plutarch who wrote this, uh, Plutarch wrote, after he does what those that eat and drink must needs do, which is a, a, a pleasingly euphemistic uh, little passage there, well done Plutarch, all those flies are absolutely bloody loving life, aren't they? Because they've just had a face full of honey and now they're a great big whopping turds to live in. It's their lucky day. So these flies and all the other creepy crawlies, the bugs and whatever else, they settle in happily to their new home. And, uh, well, yeah, you can imagine what happens next. Slowly but surely, these bugs have their way with poor Mithridates and he dies a slow, agonising death while basically being eaten alive. Apparently, it took him 17 days to die, the poor bloke. And all this just for 360 no-scoping the king's enemy, just for, you know, doing his bloody job, mate. Anyway, as I say, this story might be apocryphal. It, it, it might have been made up by Greek writers, as you know, they, as they told their stories of the Persians. But it, it is bloody gross as anything. Uh, that You know, that is, that is fair enough to say. And uh, welcome back to all the people who skipped that bit. I don't blame you. It, it is a nasty piece of business. I, I feel a bit queasy myself after, after having talked about it. Anyway, Cyrus is dead. And as soon as he falls, the forces that he's leading, of course, they turn in their heels and they flee at an appreciable fraction of the speed of light because, of course... What's the point in them fighting? They're fighting to put this bloke on the throne. He's just carked it. There's no one to fight for. There's no reason for them to continue fighting. And so they are offski. And the news, actually, the news of, of Cyrus's death takes some time to reach the 10,000. And so they keep fighting for quite a while. They're still busy hacking the Persians to bits, ignorant of this very important development that, you know, their employer has, uh, has shuffled off this mortal coil. Um, but it's not long, however, before Artaxerxes, he turns his attention to the Greeks. He, he now uses his overpowering numerical advantage to, to not only drive off the 10,000, but also destroy their camps and, and, uh, and their food supplies as well. And that was the, the end of the Battle of Conaxa. Artaxerxes kind of won it by default because Cyrus was killed so quickly by Mithridates, you know, clicking the head like a true champion, easy game. Uh, so a bit of a freebie there for Artaxerxes. Uh, great for him. Pretty bad for Cyrus, although, you know, you don't hear him complaining about it, I suppose. But for the 10,000, the Midden really has hit the windmill here because with Cyrus dead, they are about as useful as a wet fart in a paper bag. All the fighting that they did was completely pointless now that Cyrus is dead. And they're now stuck thousands of kilometers from home with no allies or friends, and they've got no food or supplies. That's the worst part, right? All of the officers, they get together, they have a chat about things, and they decide, well, boys, listen, we came here to do a bit of kingmaking. We came here to dethrone that Artaxerxes bloke. Let's shop around. Let's see if anyone else might be keen. So they approached a few other blokes to see if anyone else might be eyeing the Persian throne. One of the other people who had been an ally 
uh, of Cyrus, a fellow named uh, Arias. Uh, they offered their services to him. Said, "Hey, listen, how you know how, how how would you fancy going up against Artaxerxes? We're ready for it, mate. We'll get in there. We'll chuck around the, the left and the right. Don't even worry about it." But Arias said he didn't have any royal blood, and therefore he'd be rejected by all the other Persians, even even if they did, uh, you know, defeat Artaxerxes. So this bloke uh, was was not game for it. I mean, come on, come on, Arias, mate. Show a bit of bloody ticker, eh? Where, where's your backbone, mate? You leave that at home anyway. He's not interested. So the 10,000, they then instead approach a bloke named Tissaphernes, who is an important satrap or governor for Artaxerxes, uh, and offered, you know, offered the services of the 10,000 to Tissaphernes, said, listen, you know, we're here to, you know, if you need, if you need people hacked to bits, if you need people fought with, we are your blokes, we'll, we'll do whatever you want. But uh, Tissaphernes says, now, listen, mate, you've just fought my boss. Uh, I'm not going to deal with uh, deal with any of you blokes, all, all 10,000 of you, not, not uh, even the bloke with the limp. I'm not dealing with any of you until you offer your complete and total surrender. And, of course, our boys are not having any of that. They told him to stick it where the sun don't shine. But this is a big problem now for both sides because the Greeks needed food and supplies and Tissaphernes needed to, you know, not have an enormous heavily armed host of Greek warriors on his doorstep getting hungrier and hungrier and more and more pissed off. So Tissaphernes, he offered the Greeks some supplies so they didn't, you know, start dabbling in a bit of the good old uh, the good old plundering and pillaging but he did need a longer term solution to his problem and so he hatched a plan Tissaphernes, right he invited the leaders and the officers of the 10,000 to uh, to a bit of a sit down a bit of a feast uh, ostensibly you know talk things over and find some kind of a solution and you know see if they could figure out some way forward here this this bit of a standoff however this ended up being a bit of a clever trap here. Tissaphernes, he pulled the old episode four Olga of Kiev trick, right? Because what he did, he used the feast as a way to capture and imprison all of the Greek officers, the leaders of the 10,000, right? And shortly after this, they all had their heads chopped off. That was it. So they were they were, they were captured, they were they were imprisoned, and then they were decapitated very swiftly by this Persian bloke. So Tissaphernes did turn out to be a bit of a snake there, but uh, I guess he did solve his 10,000 problem because now in, you know, he doesn't have a 10,000 problem anymore. He's got a 9,990 something problem instead, I suppose. But without leaders and without officers, the Greeks were in disarray. Now it wasn't as simple as you know sort of cutting off the head and you know everything else everything else sort of falls apart. This this company of ten thousand mercenaries is sometimes sometimes described as a marching republic. That's how much power they had, right? An army an army of ten thousand can kind of go where they please and do what they will within within certain boundaries. And for that reason, it wasn't quite as simple as killing off all the officers. However, the message was very well and truly received by the Greeks. They recognised that they weren't about to make any friends deep in the heartlands of the Persian Empire, and so they considered their next move. They decided that seeking friends or assistance in these lands so far from home, surrounded on all sides by, you know, hostile or unknown force in the middle of the desert, mate, as well, wasn't going to be a smart idea. And so as a result, they decided instead to try to get back home, relying on, on basically just sheer numbers and strength of arms, again, as a marching republic, to try to make it safely through these foreign lands. So they elected new officers and they set off north, aiming for the Black Sea, hoping to then travel by sea back to their native Greece, because along the along the southern border, or the southern coastline, I should say, of the Black Sea, what, what is, you know, of course, Anatolia, modern-day Turkey, uh, there were Greek colonies, a couple of Greek cities that had been set up there. So they think we'll strike out there, we'll march our way up to these cities, these colonies, and then we'll be able to sail back, uh, sail back west and make it home safely. But getting to the Black Sea was going to be quite a task. It was a walk of well over a thousand kilometres through deserts and mountains and all sorts of, you know, that's just the that's just the natural, uh, you know, obstacles they've got to overcome. There's still 
thousands of kilometres or hundreds of kilometres at least of Persian Empire to get through. There's still who knows who knows what sort of stuff they're going to come across. So it really was quite a dangerous thing to set off. But under the leadership of these new officers, they did do that. They did set off. And now it's actually time to talk about one of those offices in a bit more detail before we continue the story, because I want to tell you about Xenophon of Athens. I mentioned at the top of the show that this whole story comes to us from a bloke named Xenophon, uh, who wrote an account of this adventure called the Anabasis or the Anabasis or however it's pronounced. And this account is, in fact, a first-hand one, as as one of the officers that was elected as the 10,000 left Tissaphernes in their wake and headed off to the Black Sea was, of course, Xenophon himself. In later life, uh, sorry, <laughs> Spoilers, I guess. He, he survives. There's no Game of Thrones twist at the end here. He, he does he does survive the March of the 10,000. Um, Xenophon, he went on to be a lot more than a mercenary and a soldier as well. He published works on history and philosophy. He wrote a number of Socratic dialogues as a student of Socrates. He's one of only two people uh, whose, whose works on Socrates survive to today, the other one, of course, being Plato. Um, and his works are often used by students of ancient Greek, the language, to help learn it, help learn the language of ancient Greek, um, because he was a very straightforward, very uncomplicated writer. You can actually read translations of his stuff today, and it's a lot more digestible than, uh, than most literature from that period, as, uh, as I can tell you from personal experience. Right now, however, we're more interested in him as a military leader, and luckily for the 10,000 that he's in charge of, he was a bloody good one too. Xenophon's leadership was instrumental to the 10,000 as they embarked on this long journey home. And uh, what's coming up next year is a bit of a highlight reel, but I do recommend reading uh, Anabasis or Anabasis by Xenophon if you want to dip your toe into ancient Greek literature. You can get it for free on Project Gutenberg, and it really is quite accessible and interesting. Give it a shot. Not, not super long. Um, but, uh, you know, a good way if you want, again, if you want to sort of engage with ancient Greek literature, you can't go past Xenophon to actually sort of get a taste of what it's all about because by the time, you know, you're reading the Iliad and, 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 the, and the Odyssey, it's just, it's in, even in English, even in modern English, it is incomprehensible nonsense. Anyway, Xenophon and the other officers, they lead the 10,000 away from the, che- from the treacherous Tissaphernes in his lands striking out north. However, Tissaphernes isn't quite finished with them. While wanting to avoid a full-on pitched battle with the Greeks, he still wants to make their life as hard as possible. And uh, as a result, he sends out cavalry archers to skirmish and harass the Greeks as they as they head out north, who do a good job of slow they do a very good job of slowing down the Greek march and just making life miserable for them. However, the Greeks, they refuse to break their march to you know to fight or pursue the Persian skirmishes. And uh, as a result, the Persians, they start getting gutsier and even more brazen, drawing ever closer to the 10,000 while harassing them. Xenophon decides that enough is enough, therefore, and so one night he gets together a company of archers and cavalry of his own, and he readies them under the cover of darkness. Now, next day, when the Persian skirmishes uh, arrive again to try to harry the Greeks, this company of archers and cavalry, of course, you know, the Persians aren't expecting any, any, any uh, retaliation. They've been, they've been given free reign to go and harass these poor Greeks for, for days on end now. But the next day now, when, the, uh, when they arrive to, to, to still do their, do their grim work, the company of archers and the, and the cavalry are released on the Persians. And, and, you know, with the advantage of surprise and with the Persians' overconfidence, meaning that they were way too close to the, the previously unresponsive Greeks, the Greek cavalry cut most of the Persians to pieces and they rout the rest. Now, this was a stunning victory, but it was also a short-lived one. After hearing about this, Tissaphernes goes, well, bloody bugger this skirmishing nonsense. Ready the armies, we'll go after them properly here. And so this was... Uh, yeah, kind of, kind of ignited the conflict a little bit here because the Persians now mobilise a proper army against the Greeks, knowing that the Greeks are going to be trapped when they reach the Great Zab River, found in the north of modern-day Iraq. And sure enough, 
the uh, uh, Tissaphernes' forces, they bear down on the Greeks uh, and, and, you know, as they approach the banks of the Great Zab River, which was too deep and too wide to cross easily. Now, Xenophon knows that if he lets the Persians catch up with 10,000, then there'll be no escape. They'll be cut to pieces without any way to retreat. Their backs will be against the river, and that'll be that for them. So with a flash of brilliance, he manages to kill three birds with one stone, not just one or two here. Well, you shouldn't be throwing, you know, shouldn't be throwing stones at birds, generally speaking, but in a metaphorical sense, he kills three birds with one stone, pulling off a tactical masterstroke here. He ordered his troops to pillage all of the farms in the area surrounding the rivers and to plunder and bring back all the livestock that they could. So cows, sheep, goats, donkeys, everything, right? The Greeks raided looted farms everywhere and soon had an enormous stockpile of various farm animals. Now Xenophon, he ordered all of these animals to be slaughtered and butchered and for their carcasses to be then stuffed with hay and sewn back up. All of these, I mean, he's getting some looks at this point. People go, what, 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 what are you doing here, mate? I mean, we've got the Persians coming down. Don't worry about, you know, bloody doing a bit of ghetto, you know, taxidermy. Let's, let's, what, what's the plan? And he goes, boys, don't worry about it. I've got it covered, mate. Because he then orders all the carcasses to be bound together. And if you'll believe it, laid across the Great Zab River and covered with dirt and soil to create a makeshift bridge. Unbelievable scenes. Xenophon then quickly marched his army across the river before, of course, destroying the bridge, successfully pulling off an operation of stunning genius and un- just ludicrous, ludicrous absurdity here. Not only, not only had he evaded the Persians and left them stuck on the other side of the river, you know, bloody, he's got his bloke bloody mooning and pulling their pants down and waving their bare asses at him, bloody sticking out their tongues, whatever else, having a great time, right? The Persians are stuck on the other bank, right? Not only had he looted and pillaged the farms for miles around and deprived the Persians of further resources, he had also found a way to feed his enormous army deep in the heartland of a hostile empire by, you know, raiding, looting, pillaging all these far- all these farmers, all this, you know, all this uh, agricultural land. So a- a- an absolute masterstroke. And on top of that, he's built a bridge, bridge out of dead animals, which definitely should go down in history. I mean, that's, 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 an incredible, that's an incredible way to solve a problem, I reckon. Anyway, so this little manoeuvre, it meant that the 10,000 was able to escape from the from the lands controlled by the Persian Empire, at least for a little bit, as they moved into the mountain ranges in what is in uh, the, the southeastern corner of modern-day Turkey. Now, this area was controlled by a tribe called the Cardusians, who had repelled every attempt at, at, at invasion, even those made by the mighty Persian Empire that repelled them. The story goes that 120,000 troops were sent by the Persians to conquer the Cardusians, and they effortlessly repelled them. Uh, and the Cardusians didn't waste any time in establish, establishing their dominance with the Greeks either, because as the 10,000 attempted to continue their march northwards, the Cardusians shot at them with arrows, chucked stones at them, and generally just behaved like real pricks as they were trying to get through this mountain range here. Of course, the Cardusians know the lay of the land. They know all the tricks and the... Uh, all the, all the shortcuts, all the ways in and out. So again, the Greeks are being uh, professionally harried here, having a terrible time. And eventually, the Greeks then ran into the main force of the Cardusians, who had positioned themselves very strategically in a in a very in a, in a highly defensible, highly secure position, a narrow gorge uh, through the mountains that would be easy to defend from even a huge force like Xenophon's, a bottleneck like this. So Xenophon, he realised that the 10,000 wouldn't be able to fight through the Cardusians in this well-defended gorge, and so once again, he let his tactical brilliance shine. They'd taken some prisoners, uh, some Cardusian prisoners, the Greeks, while, while skirmishing with them, and when a Cardusian prisoner revealed that there was another smaller way through the mountains, 
Xenophon hatched his plan. He waited for a rainstorm to happen overnight, and then he ordered 8,000 of his troops to attack the Cardusians in the gorge to distract them, not to try to force their way through the gorge, but at least just tie up their, their attention, their resources, and then sent the other 2,000 to sneak around the back under the cover of the storm, under the, you know, under the cover of the darker night. And as dawn broke through the mist, the 2,000 blokes who had gone around the back way, they sounded trumpets to alert the main force that had successfully made it to the rear of the Cardusians and then fell upon them. And the Cardusians now surrounded on both sides of this gorge. Uh, they suffered a total defeat and those who weren't killed fled at top speed. The 10,000 then continued on their route north, but after making it through the mountains, they were back in areas controlled by the Persians. So it was only a brief respite, even after having handily dispatched the Cardusians with this flanking manoeuvre. Unfortunately for them, they were back in hot water. And what's worse, it wasn't over with the Cardusians. They had rallied after their defeat, and they were closing in on the Greek rear. The Persians, meanwhile, back in this area that was controlled by the Persians, they had set up a blockade at a ford on, an, on a river, and once again were protecting an easily defended bottleneck like the Cardusians had with that gorge. However, they were not equal to the brilliance of Xenophon, who sent out scouts to seek another way across the river, and the scouts returned with news of another ford. However, this one was also being defended by the Persians. So Xenophon, he responded with, was, with what was a, a, a tactical masterstroke. Once again, he mobilised his forces and sent an advanced party to the second ford, making it very clear that he intended to attack it with further mobilisation. Now, the Persians, they fell for this hook, line and sinker. They responded by quickly shifting the bulk of their forces from the first ford to the second, and Xenophon then pounced and mobilised his forces on the first ford and not the second. Now, this may sound like old hat to you here. This may sound like, you know, these days, like, yeah, okay, sure, fainting, like a, you know, a bluff, a military bluff, using deception and false attacks to confuse an enemy. We've all heard of that sort of thing. But this was actually an extremely new military tactic. In fact, Xenophon is usually credited as one of the very first military commanders to use flanking, like, you know, like he did with the Cardusians, and feints, like he's doing now with the, uh, with the Persians. He, using these manoeuvres on the battlefield, one of the very first people to use it. It might not, you know, might not sound like much today in, in a world of laser-guided missiles and drone strikes and everything, but he was well and truly ahead of his time with this sort of thing, I can tell you that. Anyway. Xenophon and the bulk of his army, they stormed the ford, they crushed the Persians who were in disarray, uh, you know, as they attempted to respond to this trickery from Xenophon. The detachment that had been sent from the sent to the second ford was then recalled and rejoined the army after a forced, a forced march, and the 10,000 continued their slow and steady progress towards the Black Sea. Once again, they'd made fools of the Persians, pulled their pants down, and absolutely embarrassed them. However, now... A new foe emerged and was not one that even Xenophon was going to be able to outwit because after besting the Persians more than once, after crushing and then escaping from the Cardusians, Xenophon and his 10,000 now had to contend with one of humankind's most ancient and deadly foes, Winter. Winter was indeed well and truly coming here, and uh, and I'll tell you this, the 10,000, they were not equipped for it. They didn't have the warm clothing, they didn't have the supplies, 
They didn't have, uh, you know, I mean, they, they had to do something about it, basically. If they wanted to have any hope of making it home alive, they had to do something about their situation. So when the 10,000 came across a, uh, a wooden fortress on top of a hill, surrounded on all sides by forest, Xenophon decides, <laughs> he decides, he goes, all right, well, this is, this is the answer to our problem here. He decided to introduce the, uh, the people in the wooden fortress to some exciting new economic theories about the redistribution of resources. Now, the, th- the fundamental thrust, as it were, of Xenophon's idea is that he would redistribute the resources of the uh, of the fortress into his possession, uh, or his army would redistribute the insides of the people within the fortress and would very likely do it, you know, rather messily and bloodily too. Now, apparently the people inside the fortress weren't interested in uh, what I suppose you could call this cutting-edge economic theory, and uh, <laughs> and as soon as the Greeks appro- approached, they began to bombard the 10,000 with great big rocks and boulders, chucking them out with catapults and whatever else. But Xenophon once again rose to the occasion. He organised his troops into small bands rather than a big attack, you know, that would make these, uh, these, these, these missiles, these boulders very effective. Small bands of just a few blokes who would then approach the fortress separately and then scatter into the trees once the boulders were launched at them. And according to Anab- the, the, the Anabasis, according to Anabasis or Anabasis or whatever it's pronounced, the soldiers actually quite enjoyed this. They turned it into a bit of a game, creeping up on the fortress and avoiding these great big stones by hiding amongst the trees. Now, Xenophon knew, of course, that all they needed to do was just run the fortress out of stones, which is exactly what happened. They weren't going to be able to keep chucking boulders. They were going to run out of boulders sooner or later. And before long, his men were able to reach the fortress once they ran out of boulders. You know, the, the, boulder, the boulder rain stopped, and uh, not long after, the, not long after the, the men reached the fortress, uh, the 10,000 were... Uh, able to rather aggressively redistribute the supplies within the fortress. I'll just put it that way. With a store of food for the winter now secured from the fortress, the march to the Black Sea continued. And after a long, long journey after the Battle of Canaxa of over 1,000 kilometres, the Greeks finally reached the coast of the Black Sea. After ascending Mount Theches, Mount Theches? That's my best guess at that. I don't know how to pronounce it. After ascending Mount Theches, they famously cried, Thalata, Thalata. Attic Greek for the sea, the sea. They were so overjoyed to have finally arrived. They could see the Greek colonies on the coast below, and they were uh, there were only a few more days. They were only a few more days march away from the Greek city of Trapezius, which is modern day Trabzon in Turkey. And so at long, long last, the ten thousand, which by now numbered a lot, a lot fewer than that, I will tell you that. After a few more days' march from the mountain there, they finally reached a friendly city. And after arriving in Trapezius, they sent off envoys to the Greeks further west in Byzantium, later Constantinople, today Istanbul, to seek out transport that would bring them back to Greece after their long and tiring ordeal. And in the meantime, just for good measure, Xenophon led the 10,000 into one last battle, just for just for old time's sake, this time against the Colchians, vassals of the Persians, after obviously allying themselves with the leadership in Trapezius. They were very happy to have these mercenaries on side. And Xenophon, again, proved his tactical genius, spreading out his front line extremely thin, to break up the Colchian, uh, the tight-knit Colchian formations. And once the Colchians uh, responded, uh, as they, you know, manoeuvred to, to, to try to uh, spread out their lines as well to meet, uh, to meet the Greeks in battle, uh, Xenophon rushed his troops through the gap that was formed as the Colchians manoeuvred and tore them to bits from the inside. So once again, proving his, uh, his, his tactical genius, tactical brilliance on the battlefield. So, uh, so Xenophon, good on you, mate. Certainly <laughs> did a very good job of, uh, of leading him in there. Anyway... Unfortunately, the requests for transport from Byzantium were denied. 
the Byzantine, there was, a, there was a Greek admiral in Byzantium there, his name was Anaxibius, and he said that he couldn't spare the ships, but he would employ them and pay them if they made their own way to Byzantium, they'd have a new employer and they'd be looked after, no worries. And so spurred on by the idea of being once again, you know, in, in uh, you know, gold raining down upon them, that's, well, that's what they're, you know, they're mercenaries, that's what they're after. The 10,000, they set off once again on foot, walking towards the Bosporus and towards Byzantium. They raided and they looted Persian-controlled settlements on their way, and until it actually got so bad as they left the, the Greek colonies and headed back into areas controlled by the Persian Empire, it got so bad that the Persian satrap, the bloke in charge of this area, whose name was Pharnabazus, he paid Anaxibius to withdraw them from Byzantium, uh, sorry, withdraw them to Byzantium by ship after all. So Anaxibius, once the gold started flowing, all of a sudden he found the ships he could spare to bring the ten thousand back safely uh, behind the walls of a big Greek city. But after this, and I mean, Anax- Anaxibius, he did this. He took the money off the uh, off the Persian satrap and he and he brought the ten thousand back to Byzantium. But then, despite all of his big talk of you know employing them. He tried to send them on his on their way without employment, without pay as, as uh, you know being promised. He backed out, as you can imagine, after walking thousands of kilometres through hostile territory, after being promised employment and respite, and uh, you know and, and being looked after in Byzantium. The ten thousand, they were not too keen on this Anaxibius bloke, and they weren't too keen on this ultimate this bloke, you know, altering the deal. Uh, when Anaxibius told the 10,000 what was going to happen, uh, a fight actually broke out and Anaxibius had to go and hide in the Acropolis until Xenophon came and, you know, calmed his men down and said, listen, blokes, we, we will find a way out of this. Don't worry about this Anaxibius joker. Don't worry. We, we will get this one sorted. Uh, you know, you, just, you, just you stick with me. It's all right. So... Despite Anaxibius' treachery, the 10,000 had finally reached Greece again, and uh, after a long and dangerous adventure, they were, for the moment at least, safe in, uh, in Byzantium. And while the story of the March of the 10,000 ends here, the story of the people who made up this legendary company, of course, doesn't, because they soon left Byzantium. And they had all sorts of other adventures, even after splitting into various factions. The legends of the ten, the legend of the 10,000 lived on as these blokes went on to act as king, kingmakers. They put uh, Soetheus II on the throne of Thrace. They were hired by a Spartan general who waged a war of vengeance on, uh, remember, Tissaphernes for having beheaded all, beheaded all those officers. Well, a great number of the 10,000 went off to, uh, to settle, to square the account with old Tissaphernes, I can tell you that. And as for Xenophon, he eventually returned to Athens where he became heavily involved in, uh, in politics and he wrote extensively on, uh, on history and on politics, of course, as well, as I said. And one such work that he wrote was, of course, the Anabasis, the Anabasis, which we've zoomed over today, a story that, uh, that might, now that you think about it, might actually be a little bit familiar, might feel familiar to you. Because over the years, countless other works have been based on the Anabasis, the uh, uh, Empire of Man, the Falcon of Sparta, the Good, uh, the good Soldier Sphake. The Lost Fleet, all of these books, all of these works were based on the fundamental story of the Anabasis, a, you know, a contingent or a, a number of people far, far into the heartlands of an enemy having to make their, uh, make their, make their dangerous way back to, to safety, to their home, to their, you know, to their homes, or their homelands. And the most famous, of course, the most famous work, which you might have already figured out, you might have already thought of this one, is The Warriors, a story about a New York gang who have to make a long and dangerous journey home through the territory of other gangs in New York. And you might not just now be realising this, right? The plot of the film adaptation. So there was a book that was made into a film, and in the film, the plot is set in motion with the murder of a gang leader named, of course, Cyrus. 
Nothing is new, my friends. History is surprised by nothing. And whether you know it or not, all of these stories, they're all recycled, they're updated, they're remastered versions of what came before. And for that reason, once again, I really do recommend that you read The Anabasis by Xenophon. It's well written, it's extremely interesting, and it's quite easy to understand, especially when set against the impossibility of most other ancient texts. But best of all, better than all of that, just imagine the smug sense of superiority that you'll have when talking to your friends after you've read it, when, you know, you can just casually drop into conversation. Oh, yeah, yeah, no, not, not too much, you know. Just been reading some ancient Greek literature. You know how it goes. But that's it. That's all she wrote today, sports fans. That is the story of the March of the 10,000. Great to be doing some ancient history again after so long. I do hope you enjoyed the story, and I do hope you will uh, you know, at least give it a chance. Ancient literature is incomprehensible. It is opaque and inaccessible at the best of times. But uh, there's a reason that Xenophon is usually put forward as one of the easiest to understand, one of the most straightforward ancient authors, because uh, his work is great. It's really good. It's, uh, it is a little clunky. It does go on a little bit here and there. But if, if you do want to dip your toe into, uh, into ancient literature, there's no better place to start than, uh, than with the works of Xenophon. So I do, I do recommend it. And of course, all of his work is free. You know, <laughs> We're long past any copyright laws. I mean, what, what are we going to do? The, the estate of Xenophon are going to come after us. If we if we start to, you know going to come after Project Gutenberg for down, I don't know, downloading free audiobooks, absolutely not free free ebooks, free audiobooks. You can go and get across it. I, I do recommend you uh, you have a look at them. Anyway, another thing I recommend you go and have a look at halfhistory.net. You can of course go there, subscribe to the show on uh, on Spotify and on uh, on iTunes. You can leave reviews on iTunes. Thanks to people doing that. The shop uh, halfhistory.bigcartel.com. You can go and buy merch there if you like. Uh, and of course, you can support the show directly on Patreon. Uh, uh, Patreon.com/slash/halfhistory. Range of uh, of, of ways to support the show, different levels, and and thank you to all the new patrons who are coming in here. I do appreciate, especially at a time like this, uh, you know, every uh, every penny certainly helps. So thank you to all the people who support me week in and week out. If you want access to uh, uncut episodes, uh, if you want access to uh, you know, uh, the show notes or even ahead of time, the episodes come out a little early for Patreon supporters. So you can head over there and and check that out. Anyway, uh, that is that, of course. Oh, and of course, if you want to get in touch. Uh, like our mate Trev did to suggest uh, topics, please do. You can go to halfhousehistory.net and the contact form is there. That's generally the best way to get in touch with me. Anyway, that that is it for today. That is it for the story of the uh, the 10,000 there. I do hope you enjoyed it. We're going to leave you, of course, with a question posed on Reddit. Uh, we talked about ancient civilizations. We've talked about warfare and strife, and, uh, and all of the all, all of the you know the, the nasty things that uh, that were heading you know that came about during this time in history. All of the all of the conflict, all of the violence. And uh, Tom Ato three one four has a good question. Reddit historian Tom Ato asks, "How were ancient civilizations so violent if they didn't have TV, video games, and rap music to make them that way?" <laughs> <laughs>